Welcome back. Today we're going to be talking a little bit about Satan and Moses. So we're going to start with Satan. Here's the fun part. Um, you know Satan today as Satan or the devil or Lucifer as this big red-skinned and horned devil guy. Um, well, that that's just that's completely false. Um, Satan originated in the Old Testament. And Satan, the word in Hebrew, Satan, literally means adversary or accuser. It doesn't mean an actual person who is evil and has all these, you know, negative influences. That's a creation of the New Testament. So, looking at all the references, if you look up a English Hebrew lexicon and then look up the word Satan, you'll find every place in the Old Testament where the word Satan was used. And every time it's used, it doesn't match up to the Christian narrative of Satan being this devil guy. It always is just somebody who opposes what's going on. There was a guy who was on his way to persecute a village of Jews, and Satan showed up to stop the guy from persecuting God's chosen people. Does that sound like this evil devil guy? Every other time that you see Satan in the Old Testament, it's usually updated now to say accuser instead of Satan. But the most infamous use of Satan in the Bible is in the book of Job, where God says, all my people love me, Job is my most faithful, and Satan is like, well, let's put that to the test. Okay, so let's, let's, let's take a minute here. Why is God trying to prove anything to Satan? Why does an all-knowing, all-powerful God need to prove anything to Satan? That doesn't even make sense. So, the name Satan, or Hasatan, there's also a few indefinite articles used in front of it. Lo-Satan, Wu-Hasatan. Um, it all means the same thing. Accuser, adversary, opposer. Um... So if somebody says they want to order a pizza and they want pineapple on it, I'm going to be their Satan. I'm going to oppose their thought and I'm going to say no. If somebody wants to play Nickelback on the radio, I'm going to be your Satan. And look, I know Nickelback has newer stuff and it's not the same as the original, but once the original stuff got burnt in my mind, you're not changing my mind, I'm sorry. The name Lucifer only appears in the Bible one time. And Christians love to say that atheists take the Bible out of context. Well, if they would read the context themselves, they would see what that means. Lucifer was used as a improperly translated name for the king of Babylon. The whole chapter is talking about the king of Babylon, and at one point they use the name Lucifer, who is the morning star, which is also what they call Jesus, the morning star. 
So, in context, Lucifer is clearly not talking about this evil devil guy. And later on in the Bible, there is a devil who is in charge of a hellish location where demons go, where there will be mashing of bones and whatever else. Um, but Christianity has conflated those three concepts into one, just like they did with God and Jesus being two different people, but one. It's like the same thing. It's easier for people to understand if they don't know what they're talking about. And let's fast forward to the New Testament and see what the New Testament says about Satan. Matthew 16, Jesus says, Get behind thee, Satan. He's talking to Peter, his disciple Peter. He's calling Peter Satan. That was right after Jesus said, Peter, you are the rock upon which I build my church. So if I'm reading in context, Satan is the rock upon which Jesus builds his church. Unless Satan isn't a person and it's just a title like manager or supervisor or cashier. It's just a title. So if you are determined that Satan is actually a person, then it is Peter, unless Jesus is lying. And Jesus builds his church on Satan. Satan is a title like God or Christian. That person is a Christian. That thing is a god. There's many gods, like over 40,000 gods throughout time. God is just a title. So, moving on to Moses. Moses is the greatest of prophets, according to Jewish theology. He is the bee's knees. He is Captain America holding... Thor's hammer. When we look at the story of Moses, we want to know how historical or how historically accurate the story of Moses is. So there's ways that historians use to gauge whether or not we can reliably tell if someone is a real person and if the things they did are correct. One of the ways they use is to compare all the different stories out there. And this doesn't just mean copies of the Old Testament. They're talking about independent sources that come from this person, from this country and that country and everything else. So upon that evaluation, they found a lot of people talking about Moses, but they all attribute different stories to him. He's done slightly different things in each of the stories that kind of make it seem like he was more folklore than anything else. And another way they can tell is by how quickly stories were written about the person. There were independent researchers who looked at the how quickly people wrote stories about Moses, about Jesus, and about Muhammad. Jesus was written 
uh, outside of the Bible about 60 years after his time. Muhammad was about eight years after his time. Moses was written a thousand years after his time. A thousand years later before anybody wrote anything down about him. This doesn't mean that he definitely isn't real, but it just means that most likely he's not real. And we'll get into why this is so fascinating a little bit later in this episode. So now we're going to look at the stories of Moses. First, he is called upon to rescue the Jews who are enslaved. The Jews were just a group of people who God chose and called upon and said, if you worship me and me alone, I will rescue you from being enslaved. In this time, the Jews believed in many gods. They were called henotheistic or polytheistic. They believed in many gods, but they only worshipped a couple. The Jews were considered Canaanites. The land of Canaan each area had their own city and state gods. They had their main gods, and then they had their lower class of gods. And they would pray to their gods for everything. They needed rain. They needed to be prosperous in battle. They wanted uh, the wife to get pregnant. Just whatever. They would pray for it, and their gods would help them right now. The gods had nothing to do with an afterlife or a promise of something later. They would worship their gods for right now. So God said, if you worship me alone, I'll free you from slavery. They were enslaved there for like 300, 400 years. And Moses and his brother went to the Pharaoh and said, we come from God. Or we're on a mission from God and we demand you let his people go and that's when they had the magic showdown where Moses threw down his rod and it became a snake and then the Pharaoh's magician threw down his rod and it became a snake well wait a minute here why would the Pharaoh's magician throw down his rod unless he knew he could do that. That Maybe he's done that before. So is there another god out there giving other magical powers? Anyway, so the one snake ate the other snake, yada yada, uh, and then God said, I'm gonna harden the Pharaoh's heart. So I'm gonna mess with his free will that the Christians say God would never do. I'm going to harden his heart. I'm not going to soften his heart. I'm not going to give him a vision. I'm not going to uh, melt his feet into the floor until he believes in me. I'm just going to harden his heart because God gets to do something he loves doing here in a little bit. So then here comes the plagues trying to get the Pharaoh to change his mind even though God already knows the Pharaoh is not going to change his mind. He hardened his heart. And if, you, if you're taking a deep dive into this whole Bible story thing 
Um, each of the plagues actually represents a different Egyptian god. The locusts or the, uh, the frogs, the water turning into blood. Um, they, they all represent something that one of the other gods stood for. Um, that requires an extensive amount of external research. But that's just a fun little snippet. Um, but here comes the fun part. This is the fun part. So God is mad at the Pharaoh and his final plague is to kill innocent babies who have nothing to do with the Pharaoh. He's going to kill these babies that are just minding their own business. So you got this younger couple, a mom and a dad, and they're at home and they're both snuggling with their baby and just so happy to be with each other. And the dad is glad that he made it home from work. He doesn't like his boss. He works for the Pharaoh like most Americans, um, we don't like the president, we don't like our bosses, why would the Egyptians be any different? So they're just doing what they gotta do to feed each other, to put a roof over their heads and to put a hot meal on the table. So they're home, they're having family time, they love each other, and here comes God with his angel of death just killing everyone who doesn't put blood on their door. So. He told all the Jews to sacrifice a lamb and then take the blood and mark it on your door so that way the angel knows which houses to pass over. This is the Passover. So if it's an angel of God and God is all-knowing, why do they need to put blood on the door? Doesn't God know which houses his angels should visit and which babies it's okay to just kill for no reason like I mean you're punishing babies that have nothing to do with the Pharaoh anyway so all the townspeople cry out in anguish because their babies have died so the Pharaoh says let them go like damn it let them go fine whatever so instead of killing one person the Pharaoh or maybe the Pharaoh's son or favorite human at the time you're going to kill all these innocent babies just to make their parents scream. And then the Pharaoh would get upset about the screaming. If God is all powerful, couldn't he just fake the sounds of people screaming? He, did he have to actually kill the babies to make this happen? So Moses escapes with the Jews and crosses the Red Sea. But he actually crossed the Reed Sea. The Reed Sea was north of his location, and the Red Sea was east of his location. The Bible says the Red Sea because it was mistranslated, and people say the story is true because they found chariots at the bottom of the Red Sea. Well, that's not even the right body of water to confirm a story. It was the Reed Sea, and the Bible is written poetically. It's written in waves where the first story and the last story connect with each other. The second story and the second to last story connect with each other. When Moses was a baby, he was put in a reed basket and pushed out to sea. And then later he parts the reed sea. It was supposed to be a poetic end to the beginning of the story and they messed it up. Parting of a sea or a body of water is also symbolic to other cultures and stories out there. 
So Moses parted the sea, and then he drowned out the Pharaoh's people who came after him. And then they get lost in a desert for another 30 or 40 years. So they were enslaved for hundreds of years, and that's not good enough. Now they're going to be trapped in the desert. And one of the miracles that they talk about is that God made manna rain from the sky. And then Moses drew water from a rock by hitting it with his staff. Moses begged God to provide food and water. And by begging God for this, he showed that he didn't trust God. Heaven forbid his people get something to eat or drink. Literally, heaven forbid. So because of this, Moses wasn't allowed into the promised land, which is the land of Canaan. I don't know about you guys, but every time I've heard the story of Moses freeing the slaves, I pictured maybe about a hundred people or something. Um, I just heard today, according to historical counts, um, it was 600 men which means when you factor in the wives and the children, it was likely around 2 million people, 2 million Jews that traveled north. So the Egyptians, who are immaculate record keepers, have no record of the flood. They have no record of such a large mass of people traveling through. And there would also be physical evidence of such a large number traveling through somewhere. So a little time later, the Jews needed to have some rules. So God spoke with Moses and the people and said, I'm going to give you some commandments. And Moses went up on the mountain to get the commandments. Well, he was gone for a while. And the people were just so thrilled to no longer be a slave, they wanted to worship God. Um, they said, you know, we want to worship him all night long and whatever. So Moses' brother uh, said, well, tomorrow we'll have a feast day for God. But today we'll make a, a statue so we can praise God right now. So they gathered up all the gold earrings and necklaces and they made a golden calf. And they used that to worship God as a focal point for worshiping God. Many preachers will say the story goes that they were worshiping other gods. But if you actually read the Bible, it doesn't say that. It says they were worshiping God. They were worshiping Yahweh. Um, so they erected this monument and then tomorrow was going to be a feast to Yahweh. So why would these people who know God wants them to worship only God start worshiping another God to give thanks and praise? That just doesn't make sense. So they erected the golden calf. And they were worshiping that when Moses came down with the first set of commandments. And that's what made Moses and God so angry. Because God says, don't worship graven images. 
and you're not supposed to make idols out of gold and silver, right? And here's the biggest problem. They, the, the, the Jews, would worship their previous gods by erecting monuments and praising them. So they were using celebration practices that they used for other gods for Yahweh. So God is a jealous God. So if you told your significant other that you want to give them a back rub because your ex loves your back rub so much, you know how that's going to go over. Or if somebody gives you a birthday card that's addressed to your dad but has his name crossed out and they wrote your name in, you feel a little like belittled and, and like secondhand thought. And that's exactly what was going on. They were using the traditions of other people, the customs and traditions of man to worship God. So they, they committed a couple offenses here and that's where the main problem is. God doesn't want you to worship him using pagan traditions. This includes Christmas. Christmas is on the December 25th, which is a pagan time because it talks about the sun god and a couple other different gods are celebrated at that time. All the traditions of Christmas come from other gods. The tree, the mistletoe, uh, the yule log, just everything comes from all these other gods. And you're using that to celebrate Yahweh. Yahweh specifically says he hates that and it's an abomination. You're specifically and deliberately ignoring what God says. So, who do you think would win more out of celebrating Christmas? God or Satan? Now, I go back saying Satan as a real person because I'm continuing with the Christian narrative as I speak, even though I've already said Satan isn't a real person. I go back to him being a real person for the purposes of the Bible explanations. So the Christians who celebrate Christmas using all the pagan traditions and celebrate Easter using all the pagan traditions like the bunny, which is a sign of fertility, the fertility god or goddess Istra, or the eggs, which all represent new life and they all come from all these different pagan gods. And God says he hates when people does that and it's an abomination. So you're deliberately spitting in God's face by celebrating God using somebody else's celebrations. So I tell people that Christmas is the biggest satanic holiday of the year. We get God's people to piss off God. So Moses brought down the Ten Commandments and he also had a couple other laws. We call these the Mosaic Laws, the Laws of Moses. There's a whole bunch of different types of laws out there, dietary laws, ceremonial laws. But in the New Testament, whenever somebody talks about the law, they're talking about the law of Moses. So a lot of people see people like myself attacking Jesus. You, you got to look at it this way. Like 
Pretend Jesus is standing up on a ladder. People think I'm sitting there throwing rocks at Jesus. What I'm doing is saying Moses is the ladder. Moses is fake. So their religion doesn't have a leg to stand on. If you build your religion based off a of false pretense, then your religion can't, I mean, it doesn't have ground to stand on. If I, if I take the floor out from under him, Jesus has nowhere to stand because his whole basis is fulfilling the law of Moses, the Moses that most likely did not exist and was not even talked about for thousands of years. I'll give everyone a quick flashback. If you remember in Ace Ventura, when he went to visit that tribe, and then there was a guy standing on that totem pole trying to work on his balance, and Ace went up to the pole and started shaking it. That's basically what I'm doing. I'm not attacking the guy, I'm attacking the pole. Moses didn't exist, therefore there is no law of Moses for Jesus to fulfill, so he still could not be the Messiah. Okay, so we're done with this episode. Thank you for hanging on as long as you did. Um, the next episode, um, we're going to talk about a couple stories that show how useless women are in the Bible. And then we're also going to start the episode talking about how heaven and hell were invented by the Christians. Okay, bye.